Transmission, episode 50, February 1st, 2009. Put the gun down. What? Richard, you can't seriously trust him. I said, put the gun down, Whitmore. Aloha from the Island Lost fans. You are tuned into the transmission. This is a podcast devoted to the show Lost on ABC. My name is Jen. And I'm Ryan. And we are here to discuss the latest new and fantastic episode yes, of Lost. great episode. <laughs> Absolutely. And hey, how about that? Show number 50. Wow, I didn't think we'd make it this far. I don't really know how far we thought we'd make it. A completely meaningless yet still an encouraging milestone here at the transmission. So break it down for us, Jen. What's the plan? We'll cover the episode in eight minutes or less. Then we're going to take a step back and look at it in greater detail. We'll hear from you all, everybody, in our feedback segment. And finally, we're going to take a step into the forward cabin for some location notes here on the island. So, you ready? Let's get lost. So, the third episode of Season 5 of Lost was entitled Jughead, and we've got stuff on the island and off. I say we'll start with off the island. At a beachside village in the Philippines, Desmond is frantically looking for a doctor named Efren Salonga. Eventually, he finds him and brings him back to the boat. Penny is there. She's in labor, and the doctor helps her give birth to a baby boy. Flash ahead a few years and Desmond is sailing with his son and he's telling him about a very special island, Great Britain, and most specifically, Scotland. That's right. He says that's where mommy and daddy fell in love. But Penny comes out and says it's also where daddy broke her heart. She adds, oh, by the way, your grandfather sent a boat to kill all of daddy's friends. Desmond says they'll be fine, but Penny says not to underestimate her father. Desmond reiterates that Faraday told him that he's the only one who can help those left behind on the island. Desmond says all he has to do is find Faraday's mother. Penny asks, why now? Why did you only remember two days ago? Desmond says he doesn't know, but he's sure that it happened, and he says it'll all be over forever by nightfall. Penny asks Desmond to promise he won't ever go back to the island, and Desmond says, why in God's name would I want to? So at Oxford, Desmond asks to speak to a Faraday, but the clerk says there's no one there by that name. He mentions he was there, he saw there was a lab above the physics department, and the clerk says, what year was that that you visited? Desmond pauses and can't answer. He walks out frustrated, but he finds the physics department and a sealed door. He decides to break in, and inside he finds everything covered up. He finds a picture of Faraday with a woman, and he finds Eloise's maze. A man comes in, and he says, don't touch that. He says, says Desmond's not the first person to come around asking about Daniel Faraday. He says his job was to incinerate the rats that Daniel used so nobody would know what he was up to. Desmond asks why there's no record of Daniel Faraday any, anywhere at the university, and the man says, of course not, after what he did to that poor girl. Desmond arrives at a home, and he says he's looking for Teresa Spencer. Teresa's sister, Abigail, invites him in when he mentions Daniel Faraday. Inside, though, he learns that Teresa is unresponsive and in a coma, Abigail says she's away right now. Sometimes she thinks she's a kid, or sometimes she thinks she's talking to her dad. Abigail says that Daniel abandoned her sister and that Mr. Widmore saved her. 
Desmond is shocked. Abigail explains that Mr. Whitmore was Daniel's benefactor, funding his research and taking responsibility for what happened to Teresa. Desmond goes to see Mr. Whitmore, and Whitmore says, I haven't seen my daughter in three years. Please tell me if she's safe. Desmond, however, only demands to know where Daniel Faraday's mother is. Mr. Whitmore says she's in L.A., here's her address, and uh, you, she might not be happy to see you. She's a very private person. Whitmore tells Desmond to deliver his message, but then to get out. He says, do not put Penny's life in danger. You're putting yourself into something that goes back many, many years. Wherever you're hiding, go back back there. Desmond returns to Penny and their son on the boat, and he says there was no one to find. She died a few years ago. But Penny knows that he's lying and asks where she really is. He says that it was a mistake to get involved. It's done. It's not our problem. He promised that it was over, and if I remember anything else, I'm going to forget it. Desmond says, you're my life now. You and Charlie. (laughs) She says Desmond will never forget, so she and the baby are going with him. Oh my, well, that brings us to the island. Faraday, Charlotte, and Miles are walking through the forest uh, with a couple of red shirts, and they're going to meet Sawyer and Juliet at the creek. Faraday asks Charlotte about her headache, and she says that it's worse. She asks why Daniel is worried and what's happening to her. He says that nothing's going to happen to her. He won't let it. They reach the creek, but there's nobody there. Miles spots a tripwire, but way too late, and of course it goes off. Bombs go off. The red shirts go flying. <laughs> Men come out of the forest with arrows. A blonde woman steps up with a gun and asks who's in charge. Miles says, Faraday's in charge. She says, you couldn't stay away, could you? She asks where the rest of the people are. Cut to Sawyer, Juliet, and Locke holding their two men captive. Their uniforms say Jones and Cunningham. Locke says that they have these old army rifles that look brand new. Sawyer says, who cares about the rifles? Where the hell have you been? And Locke says the question should be, when the hell have I been? The men start speaking Latin to each other, and Juliet talks to them too. She says they're others. The blonde woman and her men are marching Faraday and friends through the forest. Miles starts to hear voices, and he um, he can sense the presence of four dead U.S. soldiers. He's just walked over their grave. He says that three of them have been shot. One is dead of radiation. Um, they keep walking, eventually arriving at a camp. Albert comes out and says, I assume you've come back for your bomb. Mm. Soon they're all tied up in a tent and Miles says that they're going to die. But Faraday says we're going to be fine. We just have to make it to the next flash. Until then, we have to pretend we are American military. Albert comes in and says they started it, coming to their island to run tests and attacking them. Faraday says that they're scientists and that they're there for the bomb. He points out a man with radiation burns and says that the bomb's housing has been compromised and he has to render it inert alpert says how can you know how can i know that you're not on some kind of suicide mission faraday says because i'm in love with the woman sitting next to me and i would never do anything to hurt her now Locke, juliet and sawyer and their two captives are headed toward the creek Locke is following his compass and juliet explains that hey latin is part of others 101 one of the men says that they knew about the creek and went ahead to ambush them juliet tells them we're not your enemies please take us to your camp 
She asks, is Richard Alpert there? That convinces Cunningham to take them, but Jones kills Cunningham and runs away. Sawyer grabs a gun and tries to shoot him, but Locke stops him, explaining that he's one of my people. Back in the tent, Daniel is explaining the U.S. H-bomb tests of the 1950s. Charlotte says that Faraday didn't have to say that he loved her, but he says he meant it. Faraday is taken to see Alpert, who explains that they found the army setting up camp and they gave them a chance to go away, but when they didn't, they were forced to kill them and take their place. Faraday asks, who forced you to kill them? And Albert says, well, I'm following orders too. Jones shows up and Albert says that he, hey, what are you doing? You could have been followed. The man says their leader is a sodding old man and doubts that he can track them or knows the island better than he does. Of course, cut to Locke and they're observing the camp. He asks Juliet how she knew that Albert would be there and she says, Richard's always been here. Locke says Albert was about to tell him how to save everyone, but they were interrupted. Locke says, that he's going to give them a head start to start their rescue for their friends, but he wants to talk to Alpert. The blonde woman, who we learn is named Ellie, is leading Faraday to the bomb at gunpoint. He says that she looks familiar. She says, I don't believe that you, a British woman, and a Chinese man are all in the U.S. Army together. Who are you? He says, I'm your best chance at disarming that bomb. They find it hanging from a wooden tower. Faraday inspects the bomb, named Jughead, and says that there's a crack in the casing. He tells Ellie that they need to get some lead and concrete and to bury it and it won't go off. He says, I know that because 50 years from now, this island is still here. She freaks out and he explains that they are from 50 years in the future and that everything is okay or pretty much okay because there haven't been any atomic blasts. Sawyer and Juliet show up and disarm Ellie. Ellie asks if they're from the future, too. Sawyer says, you told her? Meanwhile, Locke limps into camp, calling for Richard Alpert. Alpert wants to know who he is, and Locke introduces himself and says that Jacob sent him. Jones, of course, is agitated and wants to shoot Locke, and Alpert says, put the gun down, Widmore. Locke asks, your name is Widmore? Charles Widmore? It's nice to meet you. Alpert studies the compass Locke brought and asks why he doesn't remember meeting him. Locke says he needs to know how to get off the island and that Alpert should tell him because he's their leader and he has something important to do. Alpert says they have a very specific process for selecting their leadership and it starts at a very young age. Locke asks what year it is and Alpert says it's 1954. Locke goes on to say, well, May 30, 1956, two years from now, I'm going to be born in California. And if you don't believe me, come and visit me. He demands to know how to get off the island but quickly senses the telltale signs of another flash and just like that the camp is gone Locke is there with charlotte sawyer juliet faraday and miles and suddenly charlotte collapses with a bloody nose and, and thud. thud and that's jughead in uh, ooh, a little over eight minutes this time oh no uh, well what can i say a lot of stuff happening in this episode it was a good one it was brilliant. but we'll talk about that after a short break All right, Jen. I know when we watched this episode on Wednesday, uh, when it ended, you were totally psyched. But now that you've had some time to think about it, i got to ask you once more, how did you like Jughead? It is still my favorite episode of all time. Really? Yes. Better than The Constant. Better than The Pilot. Better than Walkabout. Better than The Man Behind the Curtain. I 
I gasped out loud in parts. And when an episode makes me gasp out loud, it's good. Well, you know, I, I'm not sure if I can really give it the crown like that. But I do think that this is a major episode. Of course, it's a Desmond episode. Those are almost always major episodes. Yes. But, you know, throughout the series of Lost, you'll get to certain points where you're like, okay, now they're starting to stretch credibility. Or, okay, I have no idea if these people have any idea what they're up to. And this was the episode that gave you little clues and little reveals that say, everything we've been showing you up until this point or actually most of everything we've been showing you up until this point we knew it was coming you yeah. know this is proof that uh, we're starting to pay off the overall mysteries of loss just hang in there and I, I gotta say i bought it you know i'll hang in there for the rest of the series absolutely i mean this this episode is why i love this show so much i definitely agree so yes we have charles widmore as a young brash other you know just ready to fire a gun and um running through the forest even though he's got a tracker on his tail we've got Locke. it was Locke that sent richard to go visit him as a kid i love that and the compass and just the, the whole process of you know, you think it's some mystical being sending Albert to see Locke, and it wasn't. It was Locke. Well, I mean, I think there's going to be some mystical something going on, because there's definitely also hints that there are puppet masters here. There are higher powers involved. Um, we've definitely got a lot of questions about the overall hierarchy of people coming up in You All, Everybody. Um, but how about uh, Charlie, little baby Charlie? Oh, that I just, love that. That just melted my heart. Yeah. And of course, I'm thinking to myself, uh, uh, you know, Charles being the name of Penny's dad, Charles Whitmore, that she could conceivably get away with calling her son Charlie, despite the fact that they were that he was most I'm certain named for. Charles Whitmore though doesn't look like the kind of guy who goes by Charlie. No, I, I sincerely doubt it. Um, we've got uh, also the reveal that I didn't see coming that uh, Whitmore and Faraday were connected way back to some extent. You know, yeah, that was shocking. Too. I mean, obviously that we knew that it was Whitmore that put Faraday on the boat, but you know, it's not just that he backed his research and when he messed up the mind of this young Teresa lady uh, Whitmore stepped up to take care of her uh, medical bills so I thought that was pretty cool so what do you think about the name Teresa well, certainly that uh, we were just talking about that last week with the lock scene from season one where he sees uh, Boone bloody and saying Teresa falls up the stairs, Teresa falls down the stairs just before seeing the Nigerian drug plane crash. Right. So you've got a Teresa. I think that connection is, is pretty clear or at least uh, another one of those names that come up quite often. I also thought it was kind of fascinating, though, that we have a, 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 a rich benefactor taking care of Teresa, which reminds me of... Oh, when, yeah, Christian uh, Shepherd taking care of Carol. That's right. And the coma in australia yeah. and that whole that whole sequence you know the uh, god bless this man who's taking care of us because the person who's responsible for this ran away so i thought that was a pretty cool um par uh, parallel okay i have to say this right now and this is probably really really minor but if we do find out and i'm pretty sure that we will <laughs> that mrs hawking is daniel's mom i think i'm going to be disappointed oh well i can see that it's pretty heavily telegraphed i can see that it's a very likely conclusion and frankly in you all everybody we've got a lot on that including a definitive answer if you want to hear it but um you know there are some things that you just got to let go. I mean, it's not going to be as bad as who's the man on the boat? Who's the man on the boat that's causing all of these problems and helping our friends? Oh, oh it's Michael. It's Michael. <laughs> no, I don't think I don't think they're playing it up that much. I can certainly see, as again, we discussed last week, kind of a, a fatigue of dealing with the who is it? Who is it? Who is that person going to be? But, you know, as things go, I think it's still going to be nice if that's, in fact, what we end up learning. But um, I noticed one thing is we, we didn't see any of the Oceanic Six this week. That's right. This was an Oceanic Six free episode. And uh, for you know, I, for one, 
was relieved. I think I, you know, I don't want to say we dislike the characters, but I think that their storyline is not as compelling. I'm suffering from Oceanic Six fatigue. Yes, <laughs> forget uh, airframe fatigue. We're actually sick of the people on the plane. I mean, again, it was it was a long journey that we finally saw how they got off the island last season. I really don't necessarily want to see them backtrack all the way. And I think now, definitely having seen what a Oceanic Six free episode is like, um, and really seeing how compelling the story on the island is. I agree with the creators when they said that if we spent all season getting them back, the, the fans would lynch us. Because I think we probably would. I'm getting there, yeah. And, and, and you know, of course, with this being a Oceanic 6 free episode, I think that that kind of gives you an idea that maybe we're going to just kind of, to simplify the narrative to some extent, we might alternate back and forth. That might mean that there's an all Oceanic 6 episode coming up. So speaking of Jughead, Jughead yes, is yes. a bomb. That's right. That's um, right. Are you... Of- are any any kind of opinion as to where Jughead is? Do you think it could possibly be by the swan hatch well i think that that uh, that connection is impossible not to make for those who have been again watching the show for several seasons you have the specific mention of saeed crawling under the swan hatch saying this concrete is poured and you know this kind of this sort of thing i've not seen since since chernobyl and i think that you can't uh, deny that that's sort of what faraday is recommending that the others do with this giant atomic bomb my only problem with that theory and again i think some of our fans will discuss it as well is that if you're going to bury an atomic bomb why would you go to a nice magnetically rich area of the island to put it there? yeah that's true i mean why would the swan station start to study this immense and powerful magnetic power um, be where you decide is a good place to put this bomb unless unless maybe the bomb itself has something to do with the concentration of magnetic power i don't know how that can possibly be but that's the only the only way that would make sense to me so I noticed in like the early scenes, we see a guy walking through the jungle with Juliet and Sawyer. And we get a really good <laughs> look at right. him. And we're wondering, who the, the heck, heck is that? that guy? And then, boom. <laughs> right. Absolutely. You know, they're not even shy. I mean, if they were ever shy about the, the, the efficient dispatching of red shirts. And it was so blatant in this episode because you're right. You see suddenly like, oh, is that a new character? Is that someone else? Sort of the same way that, oh, I don't know, Frogert showed up last <laughs> week. And, uh, you know, hats off to our listener, Brian from L.A., who did point out, yes, Frogert was wearing a red shirt before he got heartburn. I'm so, hoping that someday we, we see somebody in the background playing with a sock puppet. <laughs> Why is that? Well, because they're called socks by Damon and Carlton. Right, true. That so yeah, there might be socks coming coming up as well. But still, um, you know, it's almost like they're trying to have it both ways. They're trying to say yes, we know realistically that our favorite st- uh, characters, our stars on the show, aren't the only survivors left. So yes, there are some of these faceless characters running around, but they're also not being subtle about saying these folks are going to be killed off eventually. And uh, I think when we get to the point where all of our stars and our friends are the only ones that are left, they're going to say, well, you've seen this process happen. This shouldn't be a surprise, but it's still going to be a little cheesy. Um, a scene that uh, definitely stuck in my mind, I think probably the only thing that I really pondered at the end of the episode, despite all of the great answers that came up, was this long pause that Desmond gave when um, the person at Oxford said, what year was it that you visited? Mm-hmm. And he really kind of thinks about that for a while. And it didn't seem to me more that he forgot, because of course at the time that visit happened, he'd been jumping back and forth, so maybe he didn't stop and look at a calendar. It seems right. reasonable that he'd not know the year. But the fact that he thought about he, the way his face looked, looked more like he knew he knew it before, and that he realized he had forgotten it. Does that make any sense? Yeah. Yes, yeah. I mean, it really struck me as the way that Charlotte said, oh, 
you know, it's the strangest thing. I just realized now that I can't remember my mother's maiden name. That this this specific and significant piece of information has gone missing, and uh-huh. that's really what I thought was happening with Desmond. And I wonder though if that sort of telegraphing that you know he's not free yet of the effects of the island that there might still be residual effects of jumping or because uh, Faraday showed up in the at the hatch and popped this new piece of information into his head that there yeah. is some things that he's losing that there is some effect I mean basically it seems he's he's protesting so much the fact that he's going to end up back on the island that you know he's going to end up back on of the course <laughs> and, and actually though that makes me wonder too did you feel that Penny was I don't know a little too understanding of Desmond's situation I, I don't know it's hard to say. I mean, people have been saying for a long time that she has some kind of ulterior motive, that she's up to something that I, I don't I don't know. I don't really see that. Well, you know, she is her father's daughter. So I think that there's always going to be some level of suspicion that you can have about her. Of course, we've all fallen in love with Desmond and Penny and their reunification was great. Um, of course, that phone call in the constant is still, you know, a, a wonderful moment for the show. But I just can't believe that she says stuff like, um, just promise me that you're not going to go back to the island and desmond goes why in god's name would i want to do that or you know uh, don't underestimate my father and and all of these things where she's really kind of resisting yet when uh, he comes back and he's really trying not to get back into sucked into this mess she basically says i know you you're not going to forget this so tell you what we're in it with you we're going to go with you on this wild goose chase yes let's put my let's put our son in danger and i don't know it just seemed like uh, she seemed a little too willing to go along all of a sudden well maybe maybe a little but i i still have faith in her i still think she's a i think she's a good person okay so speaking of that conversation he says very overtly um why in god's name would Mm. i want to go there that's right and then there was the whole thing last week about god help us all it just seems like they're trying to tell us something well i mean we it's it's fascinating to see these these come come up because of course in the first couple of seasons of lost there was a heavy uh uh emphasis on the Bible, on God, on faith, and matters like that, it seems a little, uh, it does seem very overt that they're reintroducing these things, and specifically that when God is invoked, it's really kind of the nuclear option here, you know, that yep. it would be God that sends me back to the island. God is going to be the only person who can save us if we don't get everyone back. So um, I'm certainly hoping that uh, the end of season five or six is not the hand of God coming out of the sky, but uh, definitely uh, definitely not um, not an accidental mention there. Uh Getting away from faith, though, and kind of moving to the science and the whole time travel and movement through time, uh, the compass is really starting to give me a headache. Now, last week I said, I hope, you know, Locke just shows Albert the compass and keeps it because that would make sense to me. But if he actually hands it to Albert, then we don't know where that compass came from. And either it's stuck in a loop that's going around in the circle or somewhere there's going to be a million or an infinite number of the exact same compass. And in fact, that's what happens. Locke gives Albert the compass and then Locke vanishes with the next jump. So now Albert. Albert has the compass that Albert later gives to Locke that Albert showed to Locke. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe, I mean, do you have any idea how or where this thing is going or where it came from? Well, you mentioned the thing about the Zodiac. I don't know. Right, right. If it was with us, it came with us. So certainly, you know... Hey, actually, that's an excellent point. Maybe Albert no longer has the compass because when Locke flashes, if the compass was with them, with him the same way the Zodiac was with Julia on the beach, maybe Albert's going to dig into his pocket and the compass will be gone. I kind of like that. Yeah. And actually, it occurred to me that when you go to uh, the the screen cap 
army is impressive with lo- with Lost. So you can go to uh, the Lostpedia and you look up the compass or you look at all these other sites. And actually, the compass that Albert gives Locke that he just showed to Albert in this last episode is not the same compass that Albert shows Locke when Locke is a young boy. Oh, I didn't. Okay. I didn't realize that. And it's not the same compass that Locke had when he first arrived on the island and gave it to Saeed. So, I mean, there's like three or four different compasses and there's I think there's a Danielle compass running around right. and they're all different. So maybe oh. this all is, you know, maybe Greg Nations actually has a significantly large compass database. Uh, I certainly hope they have it all sorted out and that uh, this is all just part of the grand plan. Uh, and I like, you know, I, I'm very grateful that you mentioned the Zodiac. Yes, there is a way for this compass not to necessarily get get stuck in the loop. Uh, and before I go completely insane, I think I'm done talking about the compass for now. Okay, well, let's talk about the sign then. What sign? There's a sign in the Philippines, Mabuhay. Mabuhay is a greeting in the Philippines. And the way it was situated really reminded me of the Namaste sign in the in, at the in the island. Oh, the yes, um, when he runs to go to get to Penny, right? And it's actually on a dock. Yes, it's on a dock with a boat, just like oh, very good. So maybe that'd be kind of cool. Maybe we're going to run ourselves through some um, international languages. Hopefully, the next sign we see on a dock is uh, is welcome in in Latin. Maybe. <laughs> um, very uh, very cool observation there. Um, anything else then uh, catch your eye? Well, this has absolutely nothing to do with the episode, but okay. there's a commercial about halfway through. Did you catch this? Mm. It's a Tyson's chicken commercial, and Walt is in it. What? Well, first of all, no, that has absolutely nothing to do with loss. Thank you very much. Are you sure it was Malcolm David? Yeah, I'm David positive Kelly? it was Malcolm David Kelly. <laughs> well, that's kind of cool. I mean, I don't know. I, I think that if I were a company that was able to get a lost actor to appear in my commercial, I'd be an idiot not to run it during loss. I think this has actually happened before too. Yeah. But that's pretty cool. I mean, I guess that if you know, frankly, the the the, the phone. Uh, line people who had Evangeline Lilly should run their ads. <laughs> I don't think they could afford ABC, though. Their commercials usually run late at night. On very specific yes. channels. So, um, well, uh, I just wanted to mention one line that I thought... I mean, actually, there weren't altogether that many funny lines. Uh, Sawyer had a couple of nicknames that escaped me at the moment, but uh, he said, I hate to break up this I'm another, you're another reunion, but... Uh, <laughs> That's pretty much it. There was a there was it was a pretty heavy episode on mythology and story and character, and I definitely liked it a great deal. Um, some locations to close things out where they filmed this: uh, St Andrews, of course, the uh, the church near downtown was Oxford uh, again. Honolulu Brewing Company on Queen Street. Uh, that's a red brick building, and inside that building was Charlie's Loft, where he was with his brother. Uh-huh. But the exterior of that building was the exterior of Teresa's house, which is really weird because if you know the building, it's like a five story brick building. Building, but they made it look like a they made it look like a little house on, in a suburb because of the green screen wow, that's and the great. street. So that was kind of cool. Um, the interior of Teresa's house was Manoa Valley Inn. That's uh, 2001 Vancouver Street near the University of Hawaii, previously playing the... Claire's Psychics Place. That's right. And the doctor that examined uh, the dead girl. Oh, so that, okay. They love that location. It's a very historic, very old building. It was damaged in the recent earthquake, but clearly uh, the lost folks like it a lot. And... Um, Finally was the Keihi Boat Harbor on Sand Island, yep. which is where they built uh, the seaside village where Desmond's looking for the the, the That doctor. was very nice. I really liked that setup, and um, it was fantastic watching that scene film. And I think I had mentioned on the podcast when we first reported that location shoot was uh, I was trying to mind my own business, trying to stay out of the way. I sit at a park bench, and who should come and uh, put his water bottle next to me and hang out was Henry Ian Cusick. I hate you. And he was uh, jumping rope and being fit and trying to get sweaty for his scene and i'm just sitting there a little 
too close thinking I'm really the wrong person to be having this experience. But <laughs> anyway, so that's the lo- locations from Jughead, and those are our two cents on the episode. And we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to turn it over to you all, you all everybody. everybody. Oh, my. That kid is Charles Widmore. Uh, that explains a lot, actually. What a interesting surprise, and we're not even through the full program. Um, Ryan and Jen, love the podcast. This episode is amazing, uh, and uh, thanks. It's Daniel from Boston. Hey, Ryan and Jen. Holy crap. Uh, this is John from North Carolina again. I just got to say, I think that's going to be in my top five episodes of all time. That episode was amazing. It was like... It, it was. I think it was better than the constant. I'm gonna say that right now. I think it's been the, the con. Well, maybe the constant was better a little bit, but this was. I think just the twist and everything that happened, and they named the baby Charlie. I mean, that was. Whew, that was awesome. But anyway, keep up the great podcast, and I'll talk to y'all next week. We start off with a couple of fun calls there from Daniel and John, both in praise of Jughead. Uh, so agreeing with you to some extent, possibly best episode ever. Yeah. <laughs> Although I think last time we heard from John, he said, holy freaking crap. And this time we just got a <laughs> holy crap. So maybe there's we, maybe we should start studying the, uh, the, the exclamations. But in any case, we've got a lot of great stuff. And we're going to let you folks do most of the talking. We have some calls from Andrew, Nancy, and Ken. Hey, Transmission Podcast, uh, posted as or, or, or spoke as Dharma Bum last time I called. I'll just tell you my name is Andrew from Canada, Ontario. Uh, anyways, big fan of Lost, big fan of your podcast. I love it. So a couple things I wanted to say about uh, Jughead was, holy God, amazing. Basically, that sums up that. And I just wanted to ask you guys if you think this is going to go down in most people's minds as their favorite season. I know a lot of people had... Season four is their favorite. Most people, you know, just automatically give season one their favorite vote. But, you know, it's kind of all over the place for different people, depending on what you want out of the show. So I'm just wondering if this is going to be, for everyone, the best character slash mythology, uh, you know, season for them. And it certainly seems to be that way so far. And it'll be a tough tie, I think, for the final season, if this is the way they're going, this amount of questions and answers that they're throwing out at us. Um so anyways, I just want to say I got a feeling this Ellie who's on the island is uh, hawking, but I think that's a pretty obvious um, connection that people are making since Ellie is short for Eloise and Eloise is Hawking's uh, first name. Uh, but one thing I noticed that's really throwing me into that is she's waiting, or wearing her hair in a braid, which is extremely similar to Miss Hawking's hair. So I just thought that that was an obvious connection there. So anyways, love the show and uh, keep up the good work and thanks a lot. Bye. Hi, guys. This is Nancy. Um, but I think I figured out who that girl is who led um, Daniel Faraday to the bomb. And I think that she is Mrs. Hawkins because since we know that that other guy is um, Mr. Uh, Mister Woodmore, that she would have to be around the same age as him in real life. So I think that um, she is Mrs. Hawkins, and also I think that she is Penelope's mother because there has to be a reason why we haven't seen Mrs. Mrs. Widmore yet, and so I think that 
uh, she ended up choosing Ben's side instead of Mr. Widmore's. So that's my theory. Anyway, love the podcast. Bye. Hey, Ryan and Jen. It's Ken in California. Hey, I, I haven't, I don't know if everyone's figured this out yet, but uh, it, w- watching the recap show, at the end of it, we learned Miss Hawking's first name is Eloise. Um, and then, uh, so that puts it all together that that's definitely Faraday's mom. However, the woman in the 50s, the young girl that Faraday's going around with, and he says, you look just like someone I used to know. Her name is Ellie. So I think now we figured out that's Faraday's mom that he, that's, that's wandering around. So maybe that means from that point you have Ellie and Widmore together. And from there they become the two forces battling uh, for whatever they're battling for. Uh, didn't know if anybody noticed that. Just wanted to pass it along. Keep up the good show. Bye. Thanks for those great calls. Um, it seems like Island Ellie, as Mrs. Hawking, was this week's top theory <laughs> on the blog. And it turns out that we pretty much got an answer to this mystery, as Ken noted. Yeah, I'm not sure if some of you might consider that a spoiler, but really it was uh, the most natural conclusion for that identity. Now, Angela from New York sent us an email as well. She noted that, you know, that would explain Faraday's sense of familiarity if he's looking at his mom and, of course, why Mr. Whitmore might might get involved in Faraday's research in the first place. And uh, as uh, Jen mentioned, several commenters on the blog had similar thoughts, including Mike and VA, John Fisher, Dave, and many, many others. Like Nancy, Connie in Alaska figured that Ellie and Widmore have some kind of falling out, opening the door for Ben to take over. And Dave from Toronto figures that young brash Widmore that we see on the island was supposed to be the next leader of the others until Ben showed up. So a number of uh, really great theories there. I did want to get back to Andrew's original question, though. Do you think season five is going to be everyone's favorite season, or is it a little early to know for sure? It's looking pretty good from where I'm sitting. I think so, but we still have a lot of Oceanic 6 stuff to work out. I think that if we basically get to season 6 and everybody's on the island sorting all of this stuff out, that has to be the best season of Lost. As long as I don't have to hear Kate say, I don't do taco night! Oh, I like that line. (laughs) Anyway, obviously a lot of discussions about the family ties, and it turns out it could get a little more complicated than that. We've got some calls on that from Michelle, Mario, and Melissa. Hi, Ryan and Jen. This is Michelle from the Frigid Northeast, a long-time listener, first-time caller. Thank you so much for your podcast. I absolutely love it. And I just wanted to say that I had an epiphany this morning. I think Season 5 is going to be all about relationships. And I think we're all willing to say that Faraday's mom is probably Miss Hawking. I think maybe Miss Hawking is Island Ellie, the girl who takes Faraday out to see Jughead. So I think that she knows Widmore from the island and that they both leave the island for the same reason. Whatever the cause is for Widmore having to leave, Ellie leaves at the same time for the same reason. And I think that's why they have a relationship with each other and why Widmore knows about Faraday's research and funds it all that time. I also think there's probably a good chance that Miles is the child of Pierre Chang, that we see the baby in the opening of Jughead. And I was thinking that maybe Charlotte could be the child of Ben and Annie. And when Annie was pregnant, Ben had to send her off the island to have the baby. Somehow, Charles Widmore intervened and kept Annie and the child from being able to come back to Ben. And that would explain why Ben chose to raise Alex, Rousseau's daughter, as his own because he wanted to have that experience of raising his daughter since he couldn't have his own, and also why he's so very interested in solving the pregnancy problem on the island, because if it wasn't for that, he never would have had to send Annie away when she was pregnant. 
So I think that those might be some of the things that are going on. It's my own crazy theory, and I've never been right in five years, but I kind of like this one. All right. Thanks again. Bye. Aloha. This is Mario in Houston, Texas, and I can not believe what I just finished watching uh, last night. Uh, wow. So, obviously, the, the big aha moment for me today was when uh, the very nonchalantly mentioned that, oh, by the way, that's Widmore, and Locke says, oh, Charles Widmore, but that was really great. Uh, am I the only one who thinks that this British woman who's running around very feisty is uh, Charlotte's mother? Uh, I think the timeline would be fine as far as the age differences that she would subsequently have her as her daughter. Um, as soon as she came on the screen, I just knew that there was some connection. I just, I just felt like I knew her. I, just, I couldn't put my finger on it because I thought because of the timeline, it being the 50s. And I also thought it was great that John invited Richard to come see him as a child, uh, setting, you know, setting in motion this cyclical um, chain of events that, whereas he will eventually become their leader. Um, so trying to keep under a minute here. Uh, actually, too. Uh, love the show. Best podcast on the internet. Best loft. Best host. Best location to actually have a podcast from. Uh, thanks, Ryan and Jen. I think you guys have, have the best show, and we'll continue listening throughout the season. Aloha, Ryan and Jen. This is Melissa from the Bronx, New York. Um, calling with some kind of, you know, half-baked theories. I'm not uh, 100% sure on all of them, but here goes. My first theory is that Mrs. Hawking is Charlotte's mother, as well as Daniel Faraday's mother. My thinking behind this is that she, Charlotte can't remember her mother's maiden name, which could be coincidence, since we're not 100% certain who Faraday's mother is. But there's never anything on Lost that's just a coincidence. So I'm thinking that um, I'm thinking that Hawking is Charlotte's mother, and also it would be kind of a shout out to um, Star Wars because then you've got Faraday and Charlotte as um, Luke Skywalker and Princess Leia. So I'm also thinking that Faraday's dad is Widmore. I'm not sure why. Um, but that's just a thought. And also just kind of a kooky theory about Sawyer. Um, as he's walking through the forest with Juliet, he steps on something, and they make a point of showing that, you know, he's got this thing jammed in his foot. I'm thinking that maybe that gets infected and he loses a toe. And so then you've got this four-toed man walking around, and somehow maybe, just maybe, he cons the others on the island into thinking that he's a god or, or someone to be revered. And then you've got this four-toed statue. So, like I said, kind of half-baked theories. Not a whole lot going on, but just thought I'd share. Namaste. Thanks for those great calls. And, uh, you know, I tried to kind of draw out the family tree of what it might look like with all of these different scenarios, and it just kind of started looking more like a Pollock painting, so I kind of <laughs> gave up. Um, I uh, Hats off to, of course, Michelle for mentioning uh, the baby and Pierre Chang and that pro- probably being Miles. Of course, we had thought that yeah. last week, but I don't know why we forgot to mention it. I don't know why. Probably because there's it. a lot of this stuff to sort out. So I guess I'll just put it to you. We've got a number of theories out there about Charlotte in particular. So what do you think, Jen? Is Charlotte also Miss Hawking's daughter, like Faraday, making her a sibling or a half-sibling there? Or is Charlotte possibly the daughter of Ben and 
Annie, the long lost Annie. That's a theory I think that we've discussed before, or I don't know, maybe none of the above. The Charlotte and Mrs. Hawking scenario is really strange and creepy to me. So <laughs> I have to say no to that. But I do like the idea of her being Ben and Annie's child. I could, yeah, I think uh, I remember those theories earlier. And I think they're, that they, they put out a pretty good case there that, you know, Annie being away or having to give birth and being part of the reason why Ben has this whole daddy issue and all of this stuff going on. I think that's still a maybe. I, I really did, though, like Melissa's thought about Star Wars, that maybe that would be why they're setting it up that, oh, you're my sister you i don't know i don't know but uh, definitely some good thoughts and uh, just a lot of family ties to unscramble we've got some thoughts now on a couple of other characters from alex jason and jesse hey ryan and jen it's alex in boston i uh, want to thank you for the podcast and also for ryan's writings on the blog which i think are insanely good and insightful um on to a quick theory that emerges from jughead I think it's actually pretty clear at this point that uh, a major question has been answered unless they decide to take uh, a detour or a U-turn on this. And that specifically is that Locke is essentially the successor to Jacob and probably that Locke's consciousness has now entered Jacob and that's why um, Locke appears to be dead. Um, The reason behind this is the creators have been very clear in saying that um, the selection of Locke was based on the Dalai Lama selection, so I think it's pretty clear that they are selecting the absolute leader here, and it's reinforced tonight with Albert saying, uh, we've got a chain of command and so forth, so it's quite clear at this point that the chain of command is, uh, it goes from Jacob um, and then to uh, Alpert um, and then on down. Um, so I think certainly, given that Locke's the leader, that makes him the, the heir apparent to Jacob. Um, so I think that's a big potential uh, answer that may have already been largely revealed. Um, anyway, great show tonight, and i uh, look forward to your thoughts. Bye-bye. Hey, guys. This is Jason from Chicago. I absolutely love your show. I've been listening to your uh, podcast for uh, this season and last, last season. Didn't pick up on it till a little later. But um, anyway, here's my theory. John Locke is Jacob, and here's why. Okay, they're jumping around the island. You know, they're jumping around in time, and Locke, at some point, somehow either gets stuck but sort of spread out over all time periods. And so he's in all time periods on the island at one time. And he's never quite there, but he's never gone either. And so he becomes this figure that we know as Jacob, who ends up giving counsel to all the various leaders on the island through time. And But he's stuck. That's why in the cabin later on, he says to himself, help me, because he does he can't figure out how to get out of out of his situation and so and i think what ryan said about Locke's body being in the casket and not being dead makes perfect sense with this theory because you know his body he's like desmond he's in this trance or in this sort of comatose state while his mind is jumping around through all different time periods on the island that's my theory and i'm going to keep working on it love you guys talk to you soon bye hey there ryan and jen jesse again um I caught a little cold this week, but that cannot stop me from talking about this episode of Lost. First off, every time we see Richard, he's really well-groomed and sometimes dressed really well. Or at least always dressed better than the rest of the others. How come he's like that every time we see him, except for the time he meets little boy Ben, 
And he has that really long, funky hair, and he looks like he's been in the jungle for years. Something's up with that. Next, I think we have definitive proof that Richard is not a time traveler, but instead some type of immortal, or at least someone close to an immortal. Because first off, if he is a time traveler, then he would have known John Locke from his experience in 1956 and on, when he, you know, pretty much stalked his entire life. But in 1954, he has no clue who he is. That doesn't make any sense. Now, I'll be honest, it could all be just BS, and I could be totally wrong on all that stuff I said so far. But there's one thing that is for sure. We now know that Richard knows John Locke from 1952 on. But we also now know that Widmore knows John Locke from 1952 on. Because they met, and he's seen his face, and he knows exactly who he is. He also knows that John Locke is on that island in the future as well, because he has the passenger manifest from the plane, which he faked the, the sinking of. So can we not assume that this relates to those scenes where Richard was showing up all throughout his life, and when uh, Abaddon pops up and says hi to John when he's learning how to walk, or all those different moments? Can we not assume that then Richard and, and uh, Widmore are playing some weird, twisted game with John? And then, where does Ben fit into this? I think those are all big questions. Hopefully you guys have some answers. Love the podcast. I'll tune in and see what you have to say. Mahalo for those great calls. Some thoughts on Jacob and Richard as well. Starting with Jacob, though, uh, Alex hands down says Locke is essentially the successor to Jacob. And like the Dalai Lama, he's been selected. And uh, Jason, though, says that John Locke is Jacob in his consciousness or moving around locked in time and needing help. Um, but, of course, there's another theory, another possibility that Brandon emails us. He writes, what if at some point in the storyline we see Locke and he is still trying to save the island and the only way he can get whatever he needs is to save that he is Jacob or what if he can't say his real name because the message he needs to deliver is to people who would not believe him would Jack in season one really listen to Locke saying he's from the future mm. my main theory here is that with the time travel element and the way the losties must appear enlightened to the people on the island there is a possibility that Jacob is an idea or a type of fake name to be used I mean, think about it. We never clearly see Jacob. He moves around and disappears or is uncontrollably time traveling, and he knows what needs to happen next. Sounds like John Locke, two episodes into season five, doesn't it? Ah, very good. And Rizzo from New Jersey also shared that theory. So I guess I'm going to ask you, is John Locke the successor to Jacob? Is John Locke actually Jacob? Or is Jacob just sort of something that came out of somewhere because he just had to say somebody else was in charge and that becomes the myth of Jacob? I kind of like the idea of the third possibility mm -hmm. that it just happened because he needed a way to get his foot in the door. Right. Well, I mean, except that when um, Locke shows up in this episode and tells Richard that Jacob sent him, Richard recognizes the name at that point. So oh, true. unless Locke has jumped even further back or someone further back has come up with the construct of Jacob, um, I'm not sure how that could have happened. There's also, I think someone on our blog said that Jacob's probably an acronym and maybe it's for a super secret uh, military program or a computer of some kind. And so clearly anything can happen there. I definitely like the way our fans are thinking. So our last caller there addressed the subject of Richard. So why was he all shaggy when appearing to young Ben? Well, I definitely agree that, uh, you know, Richard is a dapperly dressed man and uh, may or may not wear eyeliner. I guess that's actually a matter of significant no, deba debate. No, he has just very pretty community. eyes. But uh, I, I'm not sure if he's always been that way. It was really good to point out, though, that he was dressed in the ragged clothes of an other when he visits Ben. One, we know that that's sort of a costume that they wear to look primitive, even though they're not. Also, I think that 
you know, when we're seeing uh, Richard in this case, for example, he's wearing the uniforms that they took off the army people. Right. So, I mean, uh, the costumes uh, being this or that, I'm not sure if we can really draw too many clues from that. I thought the question about whether Richard and Widmore are working together was interesting. I agree that there's a connection, but I don't think they're friends. No, no. Maybe opposite sides of the same coin, but not together. Right. I mean, if we're seeing young Brash Widmore here being um, basically taken down a notch by Albert, who certainly doesn't seem to think very much of young uh, Widmore at this point, that their relationship has got to be more of a rivalry and adversarial. Also, of course, Albert is working with Ben, as we saw very early on. So if anything, if any sides were chosen, it doesn't seem like Richard and Widmore would be on the same side. Yeah, I agree. We've got three more calls here from Ian, Matt, and Lori. Hey guys, it's Ian from Las Vegas is Lost. I'll keep this really short. Um, so we see that there is a bomb on the island from, uh, and Daniel Faraday is trying to uh, dislodge it or, or unarm it. And that we know that future, in the future, he was working for that uh, crazy Asian guy. Um, and then we also know that Desmond is Daniel's constant. So what connects all three things? So he knows there's a bomb. He wants to bury it. Um, he, we see him in the future working for uh, Dharma, uh, trying to do something as a worker, uh, not as a scientist. And also we know in the future beyond that, that Daniel um, gets in contact with um, oh Desmond, right, for, as, a, as a constant. Anyways, um, interesting to see how those things play out. Bye. Hi, Ryan and Jen. This is Matt from Minnesota. I'm just calling in because I noticed that um, <clears throat> Teresa, the girl that Faraday supposedly left in, in the hospital bed, um, I was thinking about Locke's weird, crazy dream in season one and how Boone kept repeating, Teresa falls up the stairs, Teresa falls down the stairs. And it seems to me like Teresa has the same time-traveling sickness that Minkowski and Desmond had because um, they were talking about how she was talking to her dad and doing all these weird things. So what I was thinking is maybe she was catatonic and her consciousness was somewhere else in time and she fell down the stairs and broke her neck. And I was also thinking that maybe she could be the woman that was taking care of Daniel um, when Daniel was crying in the second episode of season four. Um, while he was watching the news about Oceanic 815. Okay, bye, guys. Hi, Ryan and Jen. This is Lori from Los Angeles, and I just wanted to get your ideas about fate and John Locke's paralysis. We know that John Locke couldn't walk off the island, and he's only been able to walk since he's been on the island. But isn't it interesting that every time he gets really hurt, it's in his legs, like he gets stabbed by the blast door or shot in the leg by Ethan, and every time he falls, we're like, man, is he going to get up again? And he's even lost the ability to walk on the island sometimes. We know that Mrs. Hawking has said, you know, you can't avoid fate and whatever's going to happen is going to happen. And I wondered if you guys thought if maybe the island and its healing powers are just prolonging the inevitable paralysis of John Locke in a wheelchair. Just uh, wanted to see your thoughts. Thanks, guys. Bye. Thanks for those calls. Good old Ian. Always good to hear his voice. Uh, certainly, I think Faraday's timeline, if you were to chart it out, is going to get even more interesting because I keep forgetting that he's jumped back beyond where we already are. So That's there's true. just way too much to untangle at that point. Matt's thought, again, he also noticed, as we did, the name Teresa and uh, Boone's vision. I thought that that was uh, kind of a neat tie. Um, Darka23 on the blog also made that connection, although Painter Girl one on the blog thought it was just another 
another repeated name that tends to come up, like uh, uh, Tom comes up a lot Brian. And, and Brian and stuff like that. So it could be that. It could be something else. Who knows? Uh, the Is Teresa the girl who was, or the woman who was taking care of Faraday when Faraday was crying? It seems deliberate to me that we didn't see her face. Mm-hmm. So I think, I think no. I, I'm thinking no. I well, the thing it would also have to be a timeline question because how long has Teresa been in comatose? What time is that period? I guess that's the present where Desmond goes to visit him. Right. So how long ago was it that uh, Faraday was crying and deciding that he needed to get involved? Well, the- I I don't think that Faraday crying in front of the television is in the past. I think it's in the future. Oh, that's a good thought. And Michelle from New York had it as well. She writes, I'm beginning to wonder if Daniel's first and only flashback of him crying at the news of the oceanic crash might might not be as firmly placed in time as it appears. If this takes place in the future, Daniel may not remember why the crash would affect him, but he would certainly know somewhere in that crazy brain and probably react to it. As his pre-island timeline expands, since now we have the whole incident with the coma girl to consider, it's harder to fit in an institutionalized Dan into that mix. It's much easier, maybe, if this occurs in the future. So you agree then? Yes. I'm not sure I understand what she's saying. She's saying that we know a lot of what happens to Daniel off the island previous to when he comes. And it's hard to fit him in an institution into that timeline. Okay, so you're, and so they're saying that that crying happens way beyond what we've already seen. Yes. The same way we've just seen him way back in the beginning of Dharma as well. Right. So this kind of is like that other mysterious flashback that's not a flashback, a flash forward that a number of people have, have seized on, including you. Well, further instructions, but now that we know more about Lock this season, I don't believe it's true anymore. <laughs> so we've traded, we've traded one, one stealth flash forward for another stealth flash forward. I like that. Well, on the matter of Locke and Lori's call about fate and paralysis and Locke being stuck, having issues with his legs his whole life, we've got a couple of thoughts. Nathaniel emails and says there is some debate on whether Locke getting shot in the season five premiere had anything to do with his inability to walk when they first find the plane. After watching it, I feel that it does have an effect. After Locke tries to dismiss his difficulty to walk early on as a problem with the shrapnel wound, Boone points out that the wound was in the right leg, but Locke is having problems with his left. So it's clearly one leg that's happening him. If it had to do with paralysis, it would be both legs, and they would both be stone-cold dead. But Locke can move the legs and later describes it as a charley horse, so that doesn't sound like paralysis to me. Grifter7 writes on the blog, I do not believe the island has these healing abilities. Instead, I think the island has time abilities, as we know it certainly does, which allow the inhabitants of the island to revert to a previous state of their bodies. Therefore, when Locke appears to be healed and can walk again, he did not really heal. He reverted back to before his back was broken. Rose's cancer being cured was her reverting back to before she had cancer. So we've definitely got a lot of good questions to re-ask about the healing powers of the island now that we've got the time travel element or that you can get unstuck through time or move through time. Are you getting better or not? Are you just connecting with yourself? And really, um, are you just basically fated to end up the way that you began. So I definitely like a lot of these questions. So that means Sawyer's eyes were worse before they were better. Yeah, we got to, again, we sort of have to look at the, look at all of these health issues that all of our uh, survivors have had and how they've been affected. Well, we've got a lot of stuff. I think we're going to squeeze in one last batch of voicemails from Solomon, Robin, and Monica. Hey, uh, Ryan and Jen, it's Solomon from uh, New York City. Uh, I just finished watching uh, Jughead, which is the latest episode of Lost. Um, I really, really liked the episode, but something I found particularly interesting was that 
was the whole notion of time, and I was reading on your um, on your comments for this episode. Uh, the first comment is about a uh, series or a comic strip series kind of thing called Jughead's Time Police, and I thought that was interesting. And it, it says that they it's an organization that ensures history to remain the same for the future's sake, and I kind of feel like in this episode. Uh, we figure out that that's kind of the role Richard Alpler plays in this whole thing that's going on. And John Locke, either he does it intentionally or he does it inadvertently, he keeps that going. Probably because he wants to prove to Alpert that he's from the future, and Alpert is acting like the sort of like Bill and Ted's excellent adventure kind of guy whose, whose job it is to sort of make sure that history goes as planned, I guess. I don't know. It's this whole fate thing. It's really it's really complicated, but it's really interesting. And, I, you know, I was wondering what you guys thought about that. I'm guessing you'll probably get a lot of calls that are like this. But um, thanks for uh, hearing me out. And it was a great episode, and I love your show. And uh, take it easy. Uh, bye. Hey, Ryan and Jen. This is Robin from the thetvcritic.org. I thought this week's episode of Lost Jughead was really good, but to me there was something missing. Uh, and I felt that splitting the narrative between Desmond, Daniel, and Locke meant it never it never reached an emotional level where you connect and really feel like you're relating to the characters' struggles the way you did when there were flashbacks and flash-forwards. Uh, maybe an unpopular opinion, but I thought something was missing this week um, to really make this classic television. Keep up the great work. Bye. Aloha. This is Monica from Texas. And I just had a question slash observation. Um, if Sun has to go back, then what about her baby? Because the baby obviously was with her and on the island. Thanks. Thank you for those calls. Uh, so Solomon from New York City, of course, pointing out Jughead's Time Police, which came up quite a bit quite on the bit, blog. Yeah. Um, certainly a tie to the title of the episode as well. And yes, we have people that are trying to move history in the right direction. John Locke, Richard Alpert, or Mrs. Hawking as well. So um, maybe that's uh, something else to add to our reading list, our long reading list for loss. <laughs> and I really like the Bill and Ted's reference. Absolutely. It's one of my favorite Be guilty pleasure excellent movies. Excellent to each other. <laughs> I mean, we talk about Star Trek or, or uh, Back to the Future when you're talking about paradox and time travel, but, you know, Bill and Ted's, there's an entry in the canon that we shouldn't ignore, so maybe we'll add that to our DVD list. Oh, I've already seen well. it a hundred times. All right, and we've got Robin from the thetvcritic.org. Uh, he also recently started a podcast on the Lost Podcasting Network. He thought it was good, but not as good as it could have been because there was too much stuff to follow. What do you think about that? To quote what, one of the hosts of one of my favorite podcasts, I hear what you're saying, but you're completely wrong. <laughs> oh, take that, Robin. Well, you know, I mean, I can see that this episode would have been a horrible mess if there was the Oceanic Six involved. Yes. But I don't think, I mean, you had On the Island and Off the Island. I don't think it was that confusing. And there was just too much meat. Maybe it wasn't a character episode like The Lie specifically, but I think that there was just really too much good stuff to say. Altogether, bad things about Jughead. And finally, Monica with a very simple question is... If Sun has to go back, what about the baby that was in her belly? 
I don't know. I guess we'll find out. <laughs> I guess we? we're going to find out. I uh, hadn't really pondered that. I'd forgotten about that specific situation. Well, we're moving into a full hour here, so we'll try to close it out with just a few emails and blog posts from people trying to tackle the time travel question. Joshua from Sacramento writes, imagine you're standing in the back of a large truck when the driver stamps on the accelerator and then a few seconds later, the brake pedal. While you are, will be generally carried along, you probably won't be able to stay in one place. First be being thrown to the rear and then toward the front. Depending on how violent the start and stop were, you may even bounce or slide around a bit before coming to rest. This is what is happening to the Losties. The sudden movement of the island has temporarily dislodged them in time, but they will soon come to rest. I think the others and the Dharma folks have spent so much of their lives on the island that, temporarily speaking, they are tied to it like secured cargo in the truck so they don't bounce around like the Losties do. I like the metaphor, and I specifically like it because it answers the question some people have about why Juliet's sticking with Sawyer and not jumping around with or sticking around with Richard Albert then. Maybe it's because she hasn't been around long enough. Um, the other explanation being is because she was with them, you know, the physical mm-hmm. proximity. Pete from California writes an email and says, My theory on the island moving is that it moves in time but stays in the same physical place. However, because the Earth rotates on an axis, this creates the appearance that the island moves geographically. When the island makes a time jump in time, it pops back up in the same physical space, but the Earth has rotated underneath it due to the time difference, thus placing the island in different places on the planet. This explains the Black Rock and the Nigerian plane ending up there but what it about that? doesn't really explain the polar bear yeah i mean i think my thought about the, i mean certainly i basically think that the island is moving geographically what he's saying is that it's staying on the same latitude well that's the up and down yes yes latitude so it's staying on the same latitude but the longitude changes as the earth rotates but it has to move north and south as well if you're going to get polar bears and i think some of these other artifacts basically can't all end up there on the same latitude so an interesting theory though definitely and dave writes on the blog i like the idea that Locke somehow influences albert to seek him out in the future similarly to how albert influences Locke to seek him out in the past sort of reminiscent of donnie darko and of the mm-hmm. desmond faraday situation it inspired me to do a little searching and I eventually came to this Wikipedia article on predestination paradox which is a central concept of the show don't confuse fate with coincidence really whether something is coincidence or predestined in a linear concept of time e.g. what we have is open for debate but when time becomes non-linear e.g. the record skipping phenomenon you can imagine that the past or future events can affect the present the wiki stub clearly differentiates this from the grandfather paradox you can can't go back in time and kill your own grandfather. So, okay. So what he's saying is that there is a paradox possibly, but not the paradox that people think they're not going to have because it's something different. I, I don't know. See, I'm definitely starting to get a headache. <laughs> well, I just liked the fact that he brought up Donnie Darko. Mm-hmm, definitely. Because I really think that that's where the show is going. Also, 12 Monkeys. I know we've brought this up before. Right. But those... Two movies, I think, kind of illustrate what's going to happen. Yeah, but are, is that the is that a, is that a grandfather paradox or a predestination paradox? Predestination. I think. Okay. Well, clearly our minds are in danger of getting unstuck in time here. So I think as we move past our hour here on the transmission, we're going to call that the end. That's just some of the great feedback, of course, that we got from you all, everybody. And I got to tell you, we're always amazed and impressed and, and frankly, sometimes a little overwhelmed by all of your great thoughts and theories. We received over 120 comments on Absolutely. the blog, plus at least two dozen emails and 
bunches of lost line calls. Of course, we can't include it all, but we do read every email and listen to every voicemail and we do truly appreciate it. We're not kidding when we say that the transmission is powered by you. It absolutely is. So please give us a call with your thoughts at 808-356-0127. Send us an email at lost at hawaiiup.com and post it on our blog at hawaiiup.com slash blog. When you post on our blog, it actually is a really great thing because other listeners can read what you have to say and respond to it and it keeps the conversation going. Absolutely. So So use whatever uh, channel you like. We do ask, though, that if you leave a comment one way, try not to leave it in the other ways because then we start getting confused. And as you can tell, we get easily confused. (laughs) But that's it for you all, everybody. And that means it's time to move into our forward cabin. This is where we hide production news, sightings, rumors, spoilers, and all kinds of fun stuff. So if you don't want to know what's going to happen, you might want to skip ahead. Welcome to the Forward Cabin, the forward-looking section of the transmission. So we start with the preview that was attached to the end of Jughead. Tell us, Jen, what's happening next week on Lost? Jack tells Son that Ben is there to help us. Mm. Sawyer hears a blood-curdling scream in the forest. The lawyer tells Kate that she will lose Aaron. Um, On the island, we see the light from the hatch from a distance. Locke says he has to make them come back, even if it kills him. And Sawyer says he saw Kate in the jungle. Yeah, a lot of hints that they're going to come very, very close to running into themselves. The title of next week's episode is called The Little Prince and the official ABC synopsis is Kate discovers that someone knows the secret of Aaron's true parental lineage. Meanwhile, the dramatic shifts through time are placing the lives of the remaining island survivors in extreme peril. So definitely looking forward to that one. Uh, As far as filming locations and reports go, actually some of this stuff is from before, but I thought it was too interesting not to mention uh, listener Mike Sorensen had sent us some photos of an unfamiliar beach camp that was built near Camp Erdman on the North Shore. Mm. And uh, Jenny from Denver was uh, also there, and she dug up photos from that same visit she, that same area because they both saw the same thing it turns out uh that this was debris not from a plane crash although there was luggage and you know broken things lying around but debris from a shipwreck oh, yeah. with a life preserver and a box and the box bears the name best uh, i can't pronounce it which but it's Besizdus, B-E-S-I-X-D-O-U-Z-E, and I found that in Jenny's uh, picture and had to Google it, and a quick Google by a commenter on my blog, uh, Andrea, revealed a Wikipedia entry that explains that Besizdus is, uh, <laughs> it's an asteroid in any case that was discovered in 1993, and the name of the asteroid is a reference to the Little Prince, which is, of course, the story that we believe the name of the episode is named after. Now, the Little Prince lived on an asteroid, asteroid named B612, so that's where you get the French word. I'm just going to have to have her say it for me. <laughs> um, and Doc Arts, our good friend, had confirmed from his own sources that uh, this asteroid... B612? Yes, yes, is the name of Daniel Rousseau's 
boat. So there it is, folks. It's coming up. Now, um, we did tell you first here on the transmission about the pending debut of a young Danielle Rousseau, and uh, it might be in this episode that we see that. Um, The actress who's going to be playing her is Melissa Farman, and uh, I don't know if she's done anything else. The name doesn't ring I've never heard of her. At all. Um, But the question is, if this is going to be a Danielle Rousseau episode, are we going to see Mira Furlan or not? I doubt it. I'd like to, though. Definitely miss her. Um, finally, uh, the, for filming this week, eagle-eyed lost spotter Ed Morita, a good friend of mine, and Hi, a, a bakery, a pastry chef, very talented guy. He sent us a brief report after finding the crew setting up shop uh, behind the Pearl Kai Shopping Center in Pearl Ridge. Um, they used uh, Mickey's, which is actually a food stand, a lunch stand that's always been there, um, but they transformed it into La Vida Tacos. And apparently in this scene, uh, our good friend Miles, or Ken Liu, is there and uh, he's kidnapped by men who uh, seem to have dharma patches on their clothes and they throw him into a van Um, Mm. they also used a uh, apartment in the area and apparently the action surrounded a young asian boy so it sounds like it could be a flashback for miles as a young boy all right so some stories about our freighties the stories that we've been waiting a long time to get might actually be happening but that's it for the filming updates and for what's going on here uh, right now on the island so that means that this is just about it for this episode of the transmission but uh, before we let you go this week I wanted to make a little announcement uh, for all of you or you all everybody are great listeners and that is that uh, in our next couple of podcasts here we're going to be test driving our very first sponsor here at the transmission now we've been podcasting since the beginning of podcasting since 2004 and I've always described myself as a hippie geek you know I uh, we really did didn't consider advertising at all back in the glory days of season two we actually turned down advertising op- uh, opportunities because we feel you know we really do this out of love for the show and it's still true and we really do it because we love all of you and all of your great feedback but as well we also really want to go to comic-con <laughs> right so i mean that's sort of the long and short of it I mean, we, we figured that it's been uh, it's been a good time and we want to really try to see now if we can make uh, the time and energy that we put into the show pay off just a little but we can promise you that any revenue that's generated goes into making this a better show for you and that might of course include getting us back to comic-con this year so it'll just be a brief announcement uh, i'm going to read it and it's going to be sort of like this actually there's mm-hmm. not going to be any cheesy car salesman voices or weird jingles or anything and uh, so we hope that you'll listen and uh, share a little bit of your time and maybe a few clicks or so with our sponsor to help support the transmission sponsor or no though we really appreciate everybody who listens to the show and comments on our blog and emails us um it's really important to us that you share your thoughts so that we can share them with everybody else and thank you so much thank you very very much so that's it for this episode of the transmission and again we'll be back next week to tackle the next new episode of lost the transmission is powered by you so speak up please comment on our blog at hawaiiup.com slash lost send us an email to lost at hawaiiup.com or call the lost line at 808-356-0127. I gotta say, Jen, you're a trooper making it through the show with uh, your cold and your sore throat. (laughs) I'm all right. Although, you know, I think it kind of adds a little extra something to that fantastic voice of yours. Is it even sexier? My, my. Well, I think it's time to wrap it up. Uh, Yes, we gotta go. Stay lost, folks. Aloha.
This podcast is a proud member of the Lost Podcasting Network. Get all your favorite Lost podcasts in one feed at lostcasts.blogspot.com.